Good morning. Happy Easter. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He is risen. Amen. There we go. Thank you, somebody. Fill me. Uh, my name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at City Light Man. If you're new for the first time, uh, I want to say welcome. Thanks for coming to celebrate the resurrection Easter Sunday with us. Uh, man, it's a big day. It marks the event of all of history, right? The resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so that is why we're here. If you got a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to spend all of our time in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Uh, so many of us uh, have done this Easter thing several times over in our lifetime, right? Like we get our freshest clothes on, we walk to church, or we at least drive in this case, uh, to church, and we come in, and we... We experience a worship gathering, and then we go home, and we have hopefully some really good food. That's a, that's a prayer of mine even today. Uh, Brenda that just walked out. She's going to make sure that happens. Um, anyway, uh, so you're going to get good food. You're going to paint some eggs. You're going to go find eggs. There's going to be bunnies around, stuff like that. Like, you just kind of do the whole event. It's a good day, a joyful day to hang out with family and experience life, joy, and fun. However, after the bunnies are gone and the eggs are put away, hopefully you found all of them, um, Monday morning comes, right? Or at least Tuesday. Some of us got a day off tomorrow, which is helpful. Um, but Monday or Tuesday morning comes on, we put our nice clothes back away, and we jump right back on the proverbial treadmill of life, right? Day after day, seven days a week, doing essentially the same exact thing for another 364 days until Easter comes back around. And, and as I prayed for today and thought about today, I said, man, I got stuck. I got stuck because I'm like, is there more than that? I got stuck with the question, am I missing something more than, than, than what I just experienced with the, the, the best clothes we have and the good food and, and going to church and simply just being good people? Is there more than that? Well, I got good news. Guess what? There is more. Uh, the Bible would tell us that there's so much more to be had with the gospel. There's so much more to be had with Easter. Easter is not just another day that celebrates a factual or historical event. There's so much more to be had in that. And so my hope this morning is that God's word revealed to us that the gospel is for saving us from our sins. So for forgiveness of sins, it is for heaven, but it is also for so much more, well beyond any of those things. And so, as we look, let's look at the first two verses of our text to see. Now, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And so the first observation that we see is the way of the gospel. And so Paul says that the gospel, it, it, the, the way of the gospel works like this. So, so he explains it and says, hey, you, you receive it, you stand in it, and then it's actively saving us progressively throughout life, right? So, so what he's explaining is like, this is how the gospel works for you. And so the first place he goes, okay, you receive it. And so when you look at this word gospel, it actually, in the Greek, it, it means this word good news. And if you were to go to the first century where Jesus uh, lived, and during that time frame that he lived, uh, a good news or, or a gospel would be basically a proclamation or announcement of a battle victory, right? The battle's been won. Or also like a freedom from captivity. So uh, it's a beautiful word that we get to use to define like the most precious thing to us, the gospel. And so what Paul's doing here is he's reminding the Corinthian church and he's reminding us, hey, there's a victory that's been won. 
That victory has been won and the captives have been set free. There's an opportunity for you to receive that victory. And you see the, the gospel message that Jesus proclaims, that Paul proclaims, that Jesus did in fact die on the cross, did, was in fact buried, and did in fact raise from the grave, that's good news and not good advice. Now, some of us have been to churches on, on Easter Sunday morning, and we've heard the message of, man, here's five principles on how you can be a better person. Here's the problem. That's not the gospel. That's far from the gospel. You see, good advice says, man, if you're a good enough person, then God will receive you. Meaning, if your good outweighs your bad, all of a sudden, God will accept you in his presence. And I want to tell you, man, we have enough good advice going around. If you go in the bookstores, you go in the library, and there's a self-help section for you. There's plenty of that there. There's plenty of blogs out there written saying, man, you can how-to yourself all the way there. And there's plenty of 12-step processes that you can finish out. But here's the deal. None of them, and I mean none of them, are helpful for us sinful human beings to stand before a holy, good, and loving God. They're powerless. The gospel isn't good advice, but it's good news that carries power. And it's received and it's not earned. There's no amount of good works or good behavior that's going to appease God or allow him to have him let you into his presence. We're sinful. We're broken people who will one day stand before a holy God. And the question when you're standing before that holy God, I promise you, will not be, have you worked really hard to be a good person? The question won't be, have your good deeds outweighed your bad? The question on the table is, have you received my son? Have you received Jesus and his righteousness and his holiness? Have you turned from your sinfulness and trusted in what Jesus did on the cross and raising from the grave? Would you receive that gift? Have you received that gift? That's the question that will be on the table before holy God. Have you received the good news that Jesus paid it all? And we can rest in the fact that he raised from the grave as the victory dance over Satan's sin and death. Amen? That's the question. Have you received that? And after that, what Paul says is if you have indeed received that gospel, received that message, in verse 1 at the end there, it says you can stand in it. The gospel message, if you've received it, he says you can stand in it, which means you, you're secure in it. it it's, it's something like if the payment has been made, then it won't be taken back from us. It can never be taken away. Jesus' payment for our sin was paid once and for all. It cannot be snatched away. There's a saying in life that says there's nothing guaranteed. Well, here's the problem. This is the guarantee right here. The guarantee is the fact that that payment will not, cannot be removed. We can stand firm in that reality. Listen, listen to what Romans 8, 37 through 39 has to say about those who have trusted in Jesus, placed their faith in Jesus. It says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, just in case you miss something, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow or within the next hour, but what we can be assured of is the payment of Christ on our behalf will always stand. It will always be there. We can always be counted as righteous before a holy God if we place our faith in Jesus. It's a sure, it's a guarantee. Now, some of us in the room at this point are saying, okay, well, I got you, but you don't know what I just did this last year. You don't know how far off the wagon that I've fallen off of, and, and you're right, because I'm not omniscient, and I probably don't even know you yet. So, like, I don't know that information. However, here's what I do know. 
I know that there's no height, no depth, no power, no principalities, not your circumstances, not your sinfulness, not your behavior. None of those things will ever have the power to snatch away the victory that we can have in Christ and his love. Nothing. In verse 2, Paul says that we are being saved. So that's an odd statement when he says that because it sounds like, man, are we just going to get a piece of salvation and then we kind of progressively get more of it later on? And it's like, no, he, he, he said we receive it, we stay in it, so it's firm, we got it. So then what does he mean? Well, what he's pointing out here, Paul is telling us that the gospel not only frees us from the, oh, sorry, frees us from the penalty of sin, but also frees us from the power of sin over our life. You see, once, once you've placed your faith in Jesus, it doesn't stop at forgiveness. Like, we need the gospel every single day of our life to fight the sin. We, we don't simply just change our behavior. Jesus is working to change our heart. He's giving us a new nature altogether. He's giving us his nature, actually. And so that new nature isn't, let's, let's buckle up and try our really hardest to be the best person we can be. Like, if, if, if being a good person doesn't save you, it certainly will not sustain you either. The gospel is not good advice for you to change your life. The gospel is good news that Jesus will come and change your heart. So that's the way of the gospel. We receive it, we stand in it, and we're changed by it. Let's pick it up in verse 3. For I delivered to you as first of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So now what we get to see is the weight of that gospel. So Paul's telling us this gospel message, that message that follows, is the most important message ever. He's saying it's the pinnacle of truth that Jesus died, was buried, and raised from the grave. The most important thing. Everything else finds its fulfillment and its purpose in light of the gospel message. Because the gospel is the main thing. You see, Paul wrote 75% of this, the New Testament section of our Bible. And what he's saying is, after I've told you all of this, after I've explained it all and unpacked it all, here's what I want to tell you. The main thing that I want you to get from all of this is the gospel. That's the main thing. You can't miss it. Even if you had good behavior and did all the right things and didn't have the gospel, guess what? You still didn't get it. You missed it. This is the one thing that we must understand is the weight and the gravity of this message, the gospel in our life. So Paul summarizes that gospel with basically two components. Christ died, and he resurrected from the grave that he was in. And, and so to explain why this message, why, why the gospel matters so much, we have to start with us, right? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, well Paul says the reason why Jesus had to die is be, oh, for sin, right? It says for sin very clearly. Okay, then what is sin, and what is sin not? Well, sin is not primarily bad actions or bad behavior. Sin has more to do with our posture of the, our heart before a holy God. So, so sin is, is the elevation of created things to ultimate things. The, the elevation of created things to be above or more important than God. That's what sin is. You see, taking, taking what God has created and worshiping and glorifying that over the creator who made it. God has created so much for us to enjoy, right? Like, he, he's sovereign over it. He's, he knows the placements of these things. Like, listen, he, 
He said, this mountain can only be this high. And guess what? That mountain range is only going to be this far away from this ocean. And this ocean is going to expand upon this. And then he said, man, the stars in the sky, the, the hundreds of billions of them, he knows each and every single one of them and their placement and their solar system and the planets that are near them, how they're going to revolve around one another and so on. He knows them. He knows every cell, every atom. He knows it. He knows about every event of every event that leads to another event that leads to another event that starts this one in emotion and then goes on to start this event and then that event and then this one all into eternity and guess what guess this he's never overwhelmed by it i was overwhelmed by it just talking about it like right like it got me a little crazy but but he's never overwhelmed by it he, he made it all he created all for his own good pleasure his own good glory so so the stars the air that we breathe Sex, marriage, children, family, everything created for his glory and his glory alone. So everything exists to bring him glory. Therefore, sin is in every moment when you take things given by God for worship and glory of God and making those things ultimate. Taking sin is basically making good things ultimate things. So if at any point in our life, we look at God the creator and then look at his created things, so that be our spouses, our kids, our money, our job, our house, which are all intrinsically good, okay? They're, they're good things, but when we put them on the same level as God, that's when we're losing. That's when we're sinning. And so when we look at that, right, so when we evaluate all of our life, we realize, man, moment by moment, day by day, I'm constantly taking different things and placing them as in at least the same importance, if not more importance with God. And so when you're looking at that, we see how devastatingly sinful we really are. And guess what God's response to that was? In love, he sent his son to die in your place. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? And the crazy thing about it, in verses 3 and 4, it says, according to the scriptures, twice. The reason why it's saying that is saying, hey, from the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis, the very first book, this was a part of God's plan. It wasn't surprising. So if you're sitting there thinking, man, God saw my sin, and all of a sudden he panicked and sent Jesus, that's not how that works, actually. No, he had planned this from the beginning, even with his first creation, man and woman, first two humans, when they decided to choose their desire over the presence of God, even in that moment, he knew that he would send his son to die for you and me, reckless sinners who love ourselves. He knew it already. Christ dying for all of your sins, past, present, and future, was always a part of God's plan. His lead foot toward you and me is mercy and grace. So if I, if I took a poll, though, if I were to ask everyone in the room, what's the primary thing that Jesus did, right? Everyone in the room, most likely, most of us would say, well, he died on the cross for sin, right? If I asked my kids, I promise you, that's what they would say to you, hopefully, uh, is that Christ died for our sins. But, but if we stop there, that raises a problem for us. Open your Bible real quick and look at verse 17 in that same chapter. Here's what it says. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Uh-oh. That's a problem, right? Basically, we, we, we're in a lot of trouble if our gospel message only includes the cross, right? It, according to the Bible, if there is no resurrection, then there is no forgiveness for sins, according to what Paul just said. They're a two-sided coin. They're inseparable. The cross and resurrection come together. They're a package deal. But why? Why would the resurrection carry so much weight in the gospel message? 
Well, first, I think just practically speaking, um, we just celebrated Good Friday, right? Well, if it ended on Good Friday, it's not really good news for you to end on a funeral. Like, I don't know about you, but funerals aren't usually the good news of anything. Um, in fact, they're bad news. The good news comes when that person who died rose again, right? Like, so that's what makes it good news, the fact that we don't serve a dead God, but a living God. It's beautiful. And then second, the resurrection proved that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, and then he also is who he says he is, Right? So in John chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, here's what Jesus says to some religious guys. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, Jesus said that he would actually raise from the dead. He, he spoke it out loud and said, this is what's going to happen. And if it didn't happen, well, that would make Jesus a liar, Right? And there's some people that would say that Jesus was a good man and a prophet, but not God, right? And, and, and that sounds great, right? Because it's like, okay, it kind of keeps him in a neutral place. Jesus claims if simply coming from a good man or a prophet minimally makes him a compulsive liar, but I most assuredly says that he's a raving lunatic if he doesn't raise from the grave. I mean, think about it. Some dude walks in here and says, hey, I'm the son of God. No one comes to God except through me. Oh, and also, I'm going to die here in a little bit, and in three days, I'm going to race from the grave. I promise you, you're not going to look at this dude and say, man, what a great guy. He's amazing. He's got all this stuff together. No, that's not how you approach that situation. You say, no, you have some, some screws loose in your head, or maybe we as the church just got pumped. Where's the video camera, right? Like, those are the questions that come about in that. You're not going to think this is a good guy. So either he raised from the dead and is in fact God himself, or he's a raving lunatic and a compulsive liar. That's what we have here. Jesus is who he says he is. He is in fact God because he raised from the dead. Third, the resurrection was God the Father's approval of the payment. So like, you know how you pay with a check and then the check clears? Well, the payment was the cross, but the check clearing was the resurrection. God was saying, yes, in fact, he did die for sin. In fact, he did pay that in full. It's payment fulfilled. Like, isn't that good news? Like, praise God that that happened for us. That payment was received. It was payment in full. So Jesus' resurrection showed us that death does not reign. The resurrection is confirmation that the victory has been won. That's what the resurrection is. There is no gospel without a resurrection. The gospel message contained here in these two verses is the pinnacle of all truth. There is no other. There is no equal. Because this is the one and only way that man can be made right with God. Through faith in Jesus who died for sin, was buried, and raised from the grave on the third day. So we know the resurrection is essential, right? We know that it's essential to the gospel. But why does that matter today? Like, in this moment, why does that matter today? So I think there's two reasons here. One, like Christ, we will also be resurrected as well. 2 Corinthians 4.14 makes it clear. It says this, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You see, we will be raised with Christ. Death is not our end game. No, we will be with God. And that's the important component of that. You see, heaven isn't the goal, but God is. If you look at that passage that I just quoted, it says, and we will be into his presence. So it didn't say that simply we get to have this paradise, lay back for all of eternity. That's not the goal. The goal is to be in the presence 
of God. That's what's on the table for us. You see, God has a longing for you and for me to be in his presence. Not as some wimpy God who needs, needs people, okay? That's not the kind of God we serve. No, he's a king who's longing for his queen with passion and compassion and love because he knows that it's far better for us to be with him than to be here. That's what he wants for us. Glory be to God for that, right? Which gets me to my last point because if if that is true, then we can leverage the life here and now for the next one. And so being in the presence of God, we know that's super important, really good, valuable. But I think the resurrection wants more for us even today. The resurrection made it possible for us to actually have life. Like real, true life. Yes, we have a future hope, but also life in this day. If you look at Ephesians 2, 1, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then he goes in and says, but God, but God being graceful, sent his son to die so that we might have life. Listen, the, the, the Christian life, to be a follower of Christ has never been meant to be a life of mundane, boring rule following. It's lame and uneventful, quite frankly. It has always been something of risk and fulfillment and excitement and joy in our relationship with Christ. I think that's why we typically walk out on an Easter Sunday or any other Sunday for that matter and say, all right, back on the treadmill. Because we think that the most exciting, liberating event of all of history was left in the past and has no benefit until the future. John 10, 10, Jesus says this. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see that word, those words, life and abundant. That doesn't sound lame or boring to me. They sound like joy and fun and fulfillment and excitement. We serve a living God and not a dead one. One commentator put it this way. He said, Jesus calls us not to a mundane, lifeless, miserable existence that squashes human potential, but to a rich, full, joyful life one overflowing with meaningful activities under the personal favor and blessing of God and the continual fellowship of his people. Isn't that wonderful? See, like, let me ask you a question. Is your life marked by a resurrected life? Is it marked by the abundant life that can be found in Christ? Or have you substituted this beautiful gospel with something far lesser? A life of moral living and simply doing the right thing until you die. The abundant life Jesus has to offer you and me, is it, is it necessarily wealth or popularity or a lack of pain by any means? But it is an adventure. It is fulfilling. It is beautiful that what we get from the resurrection. It is far more than any possessions will ever promise to give us or even deliver on. See, good news changes people and it sets them on fire for the glory of God. It sets them on fire from the weight of the gospel in their life. And here's how we know that that's true. Let's look at verses 5 through 11. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I love that part. That's just awesome. He's like, yeah, I worked harder than all y'all. Uh, anyway, um, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So the way we know is the witness of the gospel. 
The witness of the gospel is how we know that, that the weight of the gospel bears, bears fruit. It bears the weight. The experience that we currently have in the gospel, it, it's not all of it. There's so much more to be had. And I just want to highlight two specific people who are firsthand uh, witnesses of the resurrection. I just want to share a little bit of their story. So the first one that they list is a guy named Cephas. Well, Cephas, we know, is actually Peter. Peter is a disciple of Jesus who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. So Peter, to know Peter is to know, wow, he was very cowardly, right? Like, he, he, he was a coward beyond cowards. And you see that in, at the end of Jesus' life. And you also see that with the disciples, too. They kind of have that same similar nature there. And so what happens is, is Peter denies Jesus three times, like, to his face. Dude's about to get killed. And Peter's like, I don't know. I, I don't know him. Three times. But then something happens. After the disciples run away, flee as if they were going to die themselves, they're hiding out. Jesus appears to these men, and what happens? All of a sudden, there's this change in them. There's a change to the point where they start preaching fire. These dudes are ferocious gospel preachers all of a sudden. They're not afraid to die. In fact, they're willing to give their life over for this gospel message. They were in the upper room in the book of Acts, and then before you know it, the guy Peter, the same dude, comes out and preaches a harsh gospel message. Here's what he says in Acts 2. He basically says, not only did Christ rise, but you killed him. You're the one that killed him. The, the son of God that God sent to save, you, you killed him. Now, I, are you seeing what I'm seeing here? He went from denying Jesus to proclaiming truth to thousands of people. Why? Why would he do that? The resurrected life found in the gospel. This, this resurrected life found in the gospel turns cowards into conquerors. It turns the sheepish into the bold. It turns the few into the mighty, the sinner into a saint, the prideful into the humble. That's what the resurrected life does. Peter later on, to kind of fulfill even more of that, it is, is being tried and says, man, you're going to get crucified if you don't deny Christ. Now listen to the statement that he makes to him, though. I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner of Jesus. And so you know what they did to him? They crucified him upside down because he didn't deny Christ. The same guy that denied Christ three times on his deathbed was crucified upside down because he wouldn't want it. See, that is an example of a man who was radically changed and impacted by Easter. By the events of Easter, he was changed. I just want to point out one more guy. Look at verse 8. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. So this is talking about Paul, the guy who wrote the letter itself. He said, I was a persecutor of the church. And, and trust me, this dude was vicious toward the church. If you look at the book of Acts, I think chapter 18, Paul standing there as, as a, the first Christian martyr was happening, basically. Martyrdom was happening with a guy named Stephen. And as people are pelting Stephen with rocks to the point of his death, this is what Paul's doing. He was very gracious. He was carrying everyone's coat and smiling in approval. Awesome. That's who he was. He was a vicious, terrible man who, who was ruthless toward Christians. And then Jesus stepped into this dude's story, and rather than taking the life of Christians, he gave his own so that others might meet Christ. It's a radical change. He says, he says in verse 10 that God's grace toward him was not in vain. Man, he's, he's right. 
Paul the Apostle planted churches all over the Middle East. The reason why we have the gospel today is because of what Paul had done in the Middle East. The book that we're looking at right now, the Bible in the New Testament, 75% of it was written by him, inspired and powered by the Holy Spirit. See, I think we've gotten comfortable with the testimony that I prayed a prayer one time and now I'm good. That doesn't sound like a story that Jesus is writing for you and me. After hearing the testimony of these two men, it sounds like the intention of the resurrected life should be a, a radical difference from when you first came to faith and what your life looked like before that. And my, my hope, my prayer is for, for us to, to not have believed in vain. That our faith isn't some superficial thing for us. And, and here's what I mean. If somebody were to ask you right now, how do you know? How do you know that when you stand before God, that he's going to let you into his grace-filled presence for all eternity? What would you say? Well, well, too many of us, the story or the testimony that we share is that our witness of the gospel was when I prayed a prayer one time when I was little, and that I've been a good person ever since. Or, or another story is like, I got baptized when I was a baby or some other time, and now I'm set. And then there's another one that says, man, I went from this church to this church to this church, and now I have this group of friends, and it's awesome, and life's never been any different. Look up here. Here's what's missing from those testimonies. Jesus. Jesus is missing from the story. If Jesus is the one that died for your sins and raised from the grave, he's the hero, he's the victor, he's the liberator, not you. So Jesus should be the hero of your story. And I promise you, he doesn't simply want you to just acknowledge what he did for him, for you. No, he wants to live in and through you by the power of his resurrection. He wants to radically shape your life to be so different that people look onto your life and say, man, that's the resurrected life right there. Not because of some morality or, or good things that you did, but because they see the overflow, the outflow of this relationship with the Son of God. That's what they see. So if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in that beautiful Savior that would come after you like that, that would die for you and raise in three days, Man, can I challenge you? Would you place your faith in him? Would you trust him? Would you trust the fact that he really did die for your sins and really did grace in the grave? Would you rather than hearing the most important message that I have ever heard before, rather than just hearing it, would you respond to it by saying, yeah, I, I trust my whole heart to that. Stand in the gospel. And really, that's the invitation for all of us in the room. That's the invitation for all of us in the room to, to not just walk out unchanged, unaffected, or just neutral about the resurrection of the Son of God. His desire isn't for us to just live without the power of the resurrection. No. What would it look like for us to live every single day in celebration that Jesus really did die and he really did raise in the grave 2,000 years ago? He was really in a tomb, but it was only borrowed. What would it look like if we live in such a way in a celebration that he is actively alive every single day, moment by moment, day by day?